On the 10th of August, 1628, an enormous new warship set sail from Stockholm Harbor. This was the Vasa, commissioned by King Gustavus Adolphus. It was to be the new flagship of the Swedish Navy. It was a weapon capable of securing Swedish domination of the Baltic and beyond, and an announcement of Sweden's ascent as one of the great powers of Europe. The ship was over 225 feet long, 38 feet wide, had a displacement of 1,333 tons, and was powered by 10 sails, with the capacity for 145 sailors and 300 soldiers, and equipped with 64 new bronze cannons. It was one of the most powerful warships ever constructed at the time, beautifully and intricately decorated, lined with carved statues, painted in vibrant colors. The Vasa was the physical manifestation of the glory, power, and prestige of the Swedish Empire. The ship left port for the first time in front of a crowd of hundreds of onlookers, from everyday Swedes to foreign dignitaries and ambassadors. Sailing with its gun ports open to display its power, the ship set its massive sails and began to depart the harbor. But, still within sight of the onlookers, as soon as a light gust of wind hit the sails, the Vasa tipped to one side, water flooded into one of the open ports of its gun decks, and in a matter of moments, the ship sank like a rock. From the navy yard to the bottom of the harbor in about 20 minutes. About 30 of the 150 crew members on board went down with the ship. It had been built too tall and too heavy, and though some attempts had been made to subtly alter the designs, they had been personally approved by the king. And now those designs were at the bottom of the ocean, before they could even fire a shot. The Vasa Obungle is a perfect symbol of Sweden's abortive stab at continental power in the 17th century. This is a country of few resources and few people, but it had the advantage of a compact social structure and a relatively weak aristocracy. As such, Sweden was able to coordinate resources and act with far more efficiency than much larger rivals. And the Swedes were able to synthesize many of the technological and doctrinal advances wrought by the military revolution and put them to devastating use. But regardless of Swedish ingenuity or determination, there are only so many guns you can fit on the deck of a single warship before it tips over in the wind. <laughs> Incidentally, if you want to see the Vasa, it is on display at a museum in Stockholm. They dug it out of the bay in the 60s, and it's fully preserved. It's amazing. I dreamed to see it one day, and we know that the 30 of the 150 crew died because they found their freaking skeletons yep. on board the ship. Yep, and wouldn't you know it? All of them uh, brutally malnourished <laughs> and uh, often missing limbs and uh, crucial bones. <laughs> and you have to imagine that on the initial sail of the ship, that was the cream of the Swedish yes. Navy. And there were still like one-armed guys They've in there. They've got rickets. <laughs> it was a shitty time, folks, uh, yes. in many ways. <laughs> Though the Vasa disaster was certainly a uh, black eye for Gustavus Adolphus, at this point in our story of the Thirty Years' War, he is nonetheless the man of the moment. With another collapse of the Protestant alliance in Germany, with the failure of his Danish rivals across the Orsund, and with his conflict in Poland wrapped up for the moment, Gustavus Adolphus turned the might of the Swedish Empire onto Germany. And for the first time in the conflict, it seems like perhaps the power of the Habsburgs had met their match. The Lion of the North.
Gustavus Adolphus was born on December 9th, 1594, the son of the Protestant Duke Charles Vasa and his second wife. In Gustavus's youth, his father fought a dynastic war against Gustavus's cousin, Sigismund III of Poland, a Catholic who had held the Swedish throne since 1592. Charles won this conflict in 1599 and then became King Charles IX in 1604, but in the process creating ongoing tensions between Poland and Sweden. Charles proceeded to get Sweden involved in conflicts in Russia and with the Danes, then promptly died in 1611, leaving Gustavus to ascend to the throne at age 17 in the middle of three wars. Gustavus was raised from childhood to be a king and a warrior. As a boy, he played in his father's office as the king conducted business. He first accompanied a military campaign at the age of six. By age 10, he was allowed to give opinions at the Privy Council, and a few years later, he was receiving ambassadors by himself. Gustavus was broad-minded, strong, smart, and direct in his rule. He dressed as a soldier and expected as much from his servants as he wouldn't take shit from his nobles. He was also one of the most capable administrators in all of Europe. He had taken Sweden from the fractious disunity of the war with Sigismund to one of the most efficient states in the continent. He constrained and focused the nobles into a bureaucratic management body called the Ritterhus. He developed the mineral wealth of his kingdom, built domestic industry suitable for equipping everything an army could need, and devised one of the first modern conscription programs to create a powerful army without the need for mercenaries. And yes, he personally approved of the Vasa. But I mean, come on, we all get a mulligan here or there. God, that's why pencils have a race. <laughs> it's just one ship. Gustavus possessed a level of self-confidence above and beyond almost every other leader of the moment. His unwavering assuredness in his own action, from the smallest decisions of court to the most consequential matters of martial strategy and tactics, inspired awe from his men and fear from his enemies. An Italian mercenary in his employ was paid to assassinate Gustavus, and though the soldier had several opportunities and more than once took aim with his pistol, he found he simply could not bring himself to pull the trigger, being overpowered by the raw, radiating charisma and confidence of the king. It was said of Gustavus, quote, He thinks the ship cannot sink that carries him. Ironic, yes, but perhaps the Vasa sank simply because the king was not on it at the time. Yes, Gustavus Adolphus is the kind of king that gives monarchy a good name. If hereditary rule consistently produced men of his will, ability, charisma, it would be hard to argue for any other form of class society doing better. But none of Gustavus's attributes could change the fact that he ruled over a cold, sparsely populated realm cut off from the economic heart of Europe by the Baltic. His young rule was dominated by wars with his neighbors in Russia, Denmark, and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, where he had a hereditary claim on the throne. If Sweden was to continue punching above its weight, it needed to dominate the Eastern Baltic and prevent Denmark from exercising sole control of shipping. So Swedish foreign policy was guided by a focus on regional expansion. War in Poland and the empty Swedish treasury that resulted from it is what stopped Gustavus from accepting the role of Protestant champion after the defeat of the Bohemian Revolt. 
But Cardinal Richelieu was not going to allow such a powerful potential ally to fritter away his resources romping around Prussia while the emperor <laughs> and Wallenstein solidified Habsburg power across Central Europe. <laughs> French diplomats were able to broker a truce with Poland while also opening negotiations on a monetary subsidy to underwrite a Swedish invasion of Germany. With uneasy peace achieved to his east and Baltic rival Denmark brutally humbled by Wallenstein's army, Gustavus was free to make a dramatic entrance onto the German stage. I feel like French diplomat would be a good job in this oh era. Oh my God, they were a bunch of Jesuit monks and they would just scutter, scuttle around whispering in people's ear on behalf of the cardinal. Yeah, so they all spoke in very high fancy French, so it was almost like, a, you know... A, People were multilingual at the time, but it was said the French diplomats almost had like a secret language of their yeah. own. And you- Richelieu's mentor mm-hmm. uh, had been a Jesuit named uh, Father Joseph. Yes. And during this period, he is sent, uh, Richelieu is sending Father Joseph all over the courts of Europe to stir shit up. He, is, he sent him to Regensburg to make sure that Ferdinand III was not confirmed as mm-hmm. king of the Romans, uh, get rid of Wallenstein, uh, negotiate with Bavaria. Uh, yeah, those guys were all over the place uh, at the helm of really the most sophisticated uh, diplomatic apparatus of any of these states. Right. They were matched by the Spanish simply because Spain just bribed everybody. <laughs> like they didn't need to have all these guys do it going around being all sneaky. Playing it was people just like across each other. Drop, yeah. drop a bunch of doubloons in their, in their lap. Yes. And that works too. <laughs> the sweet tongue and the bag of silver, you know? Yes. Gustavus Adolphus seems to have had precisely one friend, one advisor in the world. If Gustavus was the strength, charisma, and genius of empire, then it was his chief chancellor, Axel Oxenstierna, who is the cool, methodical, organizational core of the government. Essentially, Gustavus was the Chad and Oxenstierna was the nerd, but they functioned hand in hand to build Sweden to its heights. Oxenstierna was a brilliant diplomat, reserved yet friendly, honest but shrewd, completely devoted to the king and to the development and betterment of the Swedish people. And through his dedicated, high-minded work, one of the people most responsible for prolonging the bloodshed in Germany for another decade and a half. <laughs> Oops. Yes. So Oxenstierna is the ice to Gustavus's fire and the point man in negotiations with the French on the Swedish entrance to the war. Of course, Sweden as a Lutheran country espoused religious horror at the emperor's brutal counter-reformation efforts. But as Gustavus once pointed out, if he was really interested in defending Protestantism, he would have declared war on the Pope. Go for it, dude. Yeah, just do it. Just do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. The real motivation for intervention was security. Wallenstein's Baltic design may have failed, but the effort, which involved the construction of a canal that would have allowed merchant ships to circumvent Danish tollways, came far too close to fruition for Gustavus and Oxenstierna's comfort. They had managed to build a promising, nascent empire, controlling Finland and Livonia in modern-day Latvia, with a credible claim to Norway as well. But Swedish power would be strangled in its crib if the Habsburgs succeeded in turning the Baltic into their private lagoon. There was a deep national interest in seeing the imperial constitution amended to reduce the emperor's authority, allowing Sweden to create a sphere of influence containing the northern Protestant principalities and restricting Habsburg power to their hereditary lands in Austria. Not to mention, and the Swedes were careful not to mention it to their German allies once (laughs) the invasion began, intervention opened the door to the possibility of establishing direct Swedish control over some portion of the German lands. 
the revenues from conquered territory could then go to pay the army that had spent so many years fighting in Poland. As one member of the Swedish Diet noted, it is better to tie the goat to the neighbor's gate than one's own. <laughs> Such a 17th century Swedish idea. Yes. yes. That's, it's all goat related. It's all goat. Every, the only, every single thing is a goat yes. metaphor. So what do we make of Sweden at, the, uh, at this phase of um, you know, the 16th century state development? Why are they able to do all the things that they're able to do at this exact moment? Well, part of it has to do with, as I said, the relatively weak aristocracy uh, mm-hmm. and empowered peasantry. Uh, uh, that existed in Sweden. Uh, in the Swedish diet that it was just referred to, there was a peasant chamber. So there mm-hmm. was actual peasant representation uh, in the parliamentary government. Right. Uh, and what that meant is that the Vasa dynasty was able to make sort of common cause with this state bureaucracy that had this popular legitimacy to to break through through the morass of particular elite interests that compose the nobility and that hinder every other state in its attempt to create a meaningfully functional uh, apparatus. We've been talking about this throughout the last few episodes that the chief struggle with creating a state here is that you don't have a power share. You don't, there, the, you, there's no buy-in from the nobility. Right. There, the nobility is trying to pull the state apart. Your uh, monarch is trying to pull a state together. Right. And here they don't have a strong nobility and he's able to um, actually make the nobility do the work of managing the state in yes. the Ritterhus. Yes. And they are able to do as, as, Chris said earlier, they're able to institute a conscription program unique in Europe to to just ha- go and say, hey, in this zone, in this census tract, you need to bring me 100 guys for the army, as opposed to just having a bunch of freebooters just uh, put put a bunch of guns and uh, lances on a credit card <laughs> and then get a bunch of drunks to pull, pull, pull out of a fucking tavern, grab them, and then just go and, and uh, charge the whole thing to the emperor. Yes. Uh, they're able to actually direct... Uh, and control a national military corps. They use a lot of mercenaries, but as adjuncts to this uh, real, like fully articulated uh, proto-state apparatus, of uh, uh, a proto-national military. Right. Uh, but of course, why are they able to do this? Why don't they have this layer of uh, thieving uh, and grasping nobles? Because it's the fucking sweet, it's middle of nowhere. It's fucking frozen. <laughs> there's nothing there. You can't grow shit. There's, no, there's nothing. There's no resources. There's nothing anyone wants. Therefore, they're not going to get your swarm of nobles to cut over the carbs. It's the same reason that there's no really uh, embedded feudalism in the low countries, at at, at which point they were undrained swamps. Uh, And in those places, uh, noble rule is weakest. And then you get the ability for this nascent national structure to emerge that unifies interests and pushes them in one direction. But you can only push so far against the limits of your material base, and which is one reason that Gustavus saw the only future of Swedish power in dominating continental Europe, getting tribute from the rich, actually fertile, not frozen all the time, German lands of central and northern Germany. So, to that end, on July 4th, 1630, King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden's fleet met the German shore of the Duchy of Pomerania, and the king stepped onto German lands at Usedom, right on the modern border of Germany and Poland. While disembarking, the king tripped, stumbled, and fell to one knee, which people immediately said was because he had been driven to his knee in a holy reverie, asking God for his blessing. Gustavus landed with a force of 13,000 men, 
Paltry when you consider Wallenstein's 150,000-man monster, but it was a new beast on the field of Germany, a unified national army with intense discipline, state-of-the-art tactics, and marching behind a warrior king. So up until this point, armies in the field were mostly mercenaries, as we said, recruited from all over the empire and beyond, multilingual, multinational, multireligious, unified only by loyalty to who was ever signing their checks each month. The Swedish army was composed almost entirely of citizens of Gustavus's Swedish empire. Whether they were Swedes, Laplanders, or Finns, they were all subjects of Gustavus Adolphus, who was their king and sovereign commander and fellow soldier who fought right alongside them. The cavalry and artillery regiments were almost uniformly Swedes, and while the infantry filled out its ranks with various Scots recruited from Charles I's Britain and Germans picked up along the way, they were folded into this singular national military project in a much more concrete way than their mercenary counterparts, who would just as often switch banner for higher pay after a losing battle than sticking around with their current company. While the army contained troops of various religions, unity through Lutheranism was enforced. The army prayed twice daily, and soldiers were assigned a book of Lutheran hymns, so again, they could all sing the word of God together. The elite core of the Swedish cavalry, though, was composed of Finns. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were known as hakapeletas, which is Finnish for cut them down, which is what they would (laughs) yell as they would ride through uh, retreating infantry and cut them down with their sabers. They would yell, cut them down. So they were hakapeletas, and they were the most feared of all of the swedish troops when the when the finns showed up to your village you were fucked would they also ride reindeer they were there were uh there were many accounts and there are many uh woodcuts and carvings of finnish cavalry on reindeer just to emphasize how alien they were their language was the most alien they were uh the most scary because they were the most alien part of the swedish army the uh by the way the imperial uh version of that is the croatian Cavalry, yes who were the most culturally and linguistically alien of the imperial catholic forces and as such the ones who were most feared by the peasantry also fun fact the necktie uh came from croatian uniforms being admired by some of their more fashionable allies like the french around this time but just on that note i don't think we've quite mentioned it yet but one of the things i find funniest about this period of war is that often when two armies met in battle they would all fight each other you know one would get exhausted one would win and then the losers would just walk over and become part of the winner's army. Yep, like they this- would just sign a new contract of service. Yes. And uh, furthermore, Gustavus developed a kind of egalitarianism in his army. Units were cross-trained, giving cavalry and infantry some capability with artillery, and both artillery and infantry were given riding training. This allowed various units to take over for down specialty units, literally picking up a gun if their comrade went down, or possibly immediately putting artillery captured from the enemy on the battlefield back into use without waiting to drag it back to the Swedish line. On top of this, Gustavus's army brought new, smaller, more mobile guns into their formation, finally creating a mobile cannon infantry that could outmatch the feared Spanish Tercios version of the pike and shot formation. All of these innovations have led Gustavus to be called the father of combined arms and warfare, linking his various units, cavalry, artillery, and infantry into a single fearsome machine of highly agile, highly responsive, highly destructive force. Finally, Gustavus enforced strict discipline among his ranks. Even the Swedes had difficulty keeping their army paid regularly, and all the while the king was on campaign, Oxenstern was cracking open the finances, looking for every fee, duty, toll, tax, and custom he could juice an extra percentage point of income out of. But what Gustavus did provide 
was some of the best supplies and rations of the conflict. The entire army was kept well-fed and well-supplied with cloaks, gloves, stockings, and waterproof boots, which you got to imagine, that's a huge plus. If you don't oh, have waterproof boots in this 30 years war, You're goddamn. practically a super, it's like a mech suit. Yes. <laughs> Just having a sealed leather on your feet. Yes. And so Gustavus demanded strict restraint from the kind of brutal local plunder that kept the mercenary army supplied with violators being summarily court-martialed and shot. But this then meant that if there was ever a need to strategically raise an area, Gustavus could release his men to plunder. And the Swedes would descend on the land with the particularly intense ravenousness of an unshackled animal. Yeah, one of the things that was notable about the Swedish troops uh, is that they would march into battle with full complacency. Eyes blank, mouths slack, uh, basically dead already. Emotionally, uh, yeah, emotionally. In the great Lutheran tradition, <laughs> the great Swedish Lutheran tradition of I have been freezing my balls off on a hell-swept hell plane for my entire life, the world holds no pleasures for me. I am already dead. And it was very unnerving to the more uh, the more carnally uh, inclined Catholic yes, the, armies. The, the beer and sausage. Yeah, yeah, the beer and sausage Germans seeing that, and they get creeped out fast. Yes. I mean, we were talking about the alienness of the uh, Swedish army before. Their descent into Germany, as we're going to outline in this episode, is basically like the stormtroopers arriving. Yeah. It's a steamroller. It is in a relentless 500-mile-wide swath that runs, we'll say it again, but it runs broadly diagonally from uh, northeast to southwest. Yes. And everything before it is just pulled up. And along the way, uh, they pick up the allies, they pick up deserters and uh, prisoners of war, and it just becomes this uh, the unstoppable momentum. So in June of 1630... In the Pomeranian city of Stralsund, on the eve of Gustavus's landing, the Swedes first published the king's manifesto justifying his invasion and declaring his intentions in the German lands. By the end of the year, it went through 23 editions in five languages. Written by a Swedish diplomat in the voice of the king, the manifesto cited the emperor's inter- intervention on behalf of Gustavus's Polish enemies, who, had been, who were also the emperor's in-laws, as a justification for a retaliation. The invasion was framed not as a religious crusade against the papal antichrist, but as a defense of German liberties from the the threat of Habsburg tyranny. Yet the Protestant German princes were slow to rally to his cause. Mm -hmm. Gustavus's army easily seized effective control of the sandy backwater of Pomerania, annexing Strausland outright and strong-arming the Duke into providing funds to the Swedes and acknowledging the Swedish right to sequester his dukedom upon his death, basically telling him, you thought your eldest son was going to get Pomerania after uh, we got bad news for you, it's going to the king after you die. This made some of the princes anxious at the prospect of trading one imperial tyranny for another. The Protestant Chancellor of Brandenburg told a convention of princely representatives, the Swede is a foreign king who had no business in the empire. But Gustavus was not going to take no for an answer. He told his wife's brother, also from Brandenburg, I don't want to hear about neutrality. His grace will be my friend or my foe. This is a fight between God and the devil. If his grace is with God, he must join me. If he is for the devil, he must fight me. There is no third way. (laughs) Now that, of course, didn't stop old John George of Saxony from trying to find one.
John George of Saxony, Beer George, always caught between his cautious Protestantism and his princely rights, gets George William of Brandenburg on board to oppose this foreign intervention. And I'm sorry already, dear listeners, but this entire episode, we're going to be talking about John George and George William. It gets a little confusing. John George is Saxony, always trying to find a third way. George William is the elector of Brandenburg, and uh, he's also a bit of a pussy yeah. uh, trying to find a third way. But John George is, is, is these are the, 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 mo- the moderate block yes. of Protestant electors. Right. And they are in the uh, the west, in the east and north of Germany. Yes. Uh, and they're basically directly, the land's directly bordering the region that Gustavus is invading. So together they convened a meeting of the Protestant princes at Leipzig in spring 1631. There they petitioned Ferdinand. We are ready to make peace in Germany against the Swedish menace if we can do something about the Edict of Restitution and the imperial armies that are still in the field. John George, with Wallenstein's general von Armen, begins fielding an army in the north, competing with Gustavus for men, supplies, and dominance. Emperor Ferdinand, presented with a broad alliance of princes, crossing religious divisions, ready to stand together in common cause for the unity of the empire against the menace of foreign invaders, of course rejects the offer rescinding the edict would of course be heresy surely these electors were just making the same flaccid demands they had been making for over a decade ferdinand man learn to take a deal come on take yes for an answer dude uh i mean it's this devil's not because it is driven by ferdinand's genuine religious conviction that he had a duty as emperor to re-catholicize the empire and that he had to continue uh, resisting. To, they had he, that the edict was crucial to that, but also the edict was the structure that the edict was how he was going to carry out the project of Habsburg domination, right? And maintaining and 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 battening up and supporting in the face of this you know deep crisis that they were in, uh, the continued domination of the empire. So he he, he maybe he might, he might have been better off not to do it, but at the same time. Is there any deal he makes with those uh, Brandenburg and, and Saxony that does not ultimately undermine his authority? So while the Saxons are dithering and Ferdinand is looking at gift horse in the mouth, Gustavus is able to make an alliance with Hesse Cashel, whose landgrave banked on Gustavus rewarding his early loyalty with an electoral position in a reformed post-war empire. Most of Gustavus's early German allies were these marginal princes. Like the big boys are like, no, yes. But the guys who aren't electors who aren't in the top tier, they see Gustavus as their meal ticket. They are marginal princes. They felt slighted by the current imperial constitutional settlement. Maybe I get to be the elector of Hesse Keschel. So they sign up with Gustavus. The most dramatic declaration for Gustavus, though, came in that proud evangelical city of Magdeburg, which had so dramatically held out against an imperial siege during the Smalkaldic Wars. Magdeburg's Lutheran Archbishop Christian Wilhelm. Oh, goddamn! Another Christian. Goddamn it! <laughs> another Christian and another Wilhelm. <laughs> Motherfucker! Get some new names. Seventeenth century Get Germany. New names. Seventeenth century Germany. Uh, and and their and its and its city council had supported the Danes during their invasion, which led to Christian Wilhelm being banished from the city and the city then being occupied by imperial troops. Shortly after the Swedish forces entered Germany, though, Christian Wilhelm snuck into the city under cover <laughs> of night and rallied the council to expel the occupiers and swear allegiance to Gustavus. The auspicious occasion uh, was marked by the screeching of ravens and a sunset that turns the elba river blood red good signs good yeah, signs all good signs good decisions being made by everyone in magdeburg 
The Habsburg military response was hampered by Maximilian of Bavaria. Yes. He's reluctant to fight the Swedes and risk alienating their ally Richelieu, who he's conducting his own diplomacy with. Uh, Wallenstein made matters worse by obstructing the handover of command to Count Tilly. He'd go, but he would not go out gracefully. Tilly was denied access to supplies and lodging held by Wallenstein, and many of the officers left the service with their chief. The army was dissolving before Tilly's eyes. He wrote despairingly, All the days of my life, I have never seen an army so lacking in everything at one and the same time, from the most important to the least. No draft horses, no officers, no cannon, no powder, no ammunition, no picks or shovels, no money, and no food. The fall and winter of 1630 passed in relative quiet, while Gustavus attempted to gather allies, and Ferdinand gathered troops. In January of 1631, Oxenstierna finalized a treaty with Richelieu for a $400,000 a year subsidy. I know it's like, what, is this? what does that mean? It's a lot of money, okay? Yes. Just think big mouth. Try, try to count to 400000 It's a lot of money. Yeah. It's, it's, it's made of gold or silver or whatever. It's, it's valuable. Yes. You can, you can wage war on it for a while. <laughs> Richelieu hoped that the Swedes would be a useful proxy in the French effort to reduce Habsburg power, but not be so successful as to become a threat on their own. Which member of the partnership, Sweden or France, would hold the upper hand would fully be determined by feats of Swedish arms. By the spring of 1631, after initial skirmishes with imperial troops, Swedish and allied forces had secured control of almost all of Baltic Germany down to the Oder River. Ferdinand and Maximilian were able to bring 12,000 troops into the field with another 25,000 freed up in Italy by the end of the Mantua War who were sent over the Alps in May. So, I mean, the one thing that I think about here is like, remember that this time last year in the story, Wallenstein had 150,000 men in the field. And we were talking about the army dissolving in front of Tilly. And the important thing is, is that Ferdinand has to fire Wallenstein. But Wallenstein is more than just his men. He is the the genius of logistics. He is the actual brains of the operation yes it all runs on him and as we said the top officers under his command are essentially his creatures right. and go with him so the the military is from a command perspective de- decapitated and he takes all of his uh, capital with him and goes home he takes his ball and goes home because he t- remember he had turned friedland into a perfectly efficient war making machine yeah and without him you don't have any of that no boots no it, waterproof boots it's all going away and everybody just and people just start like what happened with these armies is, is that once supplies stopped coming in, people would just start walking away. Yeah, they would just leave, and <laughs> maybe they would find the nearest the bricks. Maybe if they would find the bricks. The other army. Hey, yeah. I'll go over to the Swedes and I'll sign up with them. And they would just like stop until they hit another army and joined it. But if there's nothing coming in and no promise of it, there's nothing to stop people from just leaving. And they would. That's what would happen until you were able to bring in the supplies to gather people around. And we'll talk about this in a more in a future episode. But that's one of the things you have to keep in your head about how destructive this war is. It's not just the armies meeting in the field and fighting each other. It's bringing these 150,000 people across the land, and they just go into the next town and take anything they need to to live or eat. The way to think of uh, 17th century uh, European armies is that they are giant mobile armed music festivals <laughs> they, are, they are hundreds of thousands in some cases of guys but yes. not just the soldiers and not just support personnel you've got entire families right guys would travel with their wife and kids who would all live them they would all live together uh, uh, obviously all kinds of uh, uh, prostitutes and uh, peddlers supplying them with alcohol and food and supplies uh, an entire economy, a moving city that needed to be fed. And so 
it would be as a locust stripping the land as it moved across Europe. And that's why the, the tactics so much end up being about keeping your army in enemy territory until there's no more food in the cupboard. Meanwhile, the situation in Magdeburg had become dire. With Christian William reasserting control of the city, General Tilly had dispatched Field Marshal Gottfried Heinrich Graf zu Pappenheim to besiege the city, which he did in late March 1631. Magdeburg remained one of the most fervently Protestant strongholds, a necessary node of power Gustavus sought to link up with. He had dispatched one of his commanders to help fortify the city, but soon the number of Catholic troops surrounding the city grew to equal the total population of the city itself, a city surrounded by a city of war. Mm -hmm. While Gustavus attempted to negotiate passage and support from the recalcitrant Protestant electors of Brandenburg and Saxony, negotiations between Tilly and Pappenheim's forces and the Magdeburg city councilors deteriorated. Finally, on May 20th, 1631, Despite a last desperate motion for surrender being made by the city burghers, Tilly ordered a final assault on the city. Pappenheim, a Catholic convert, hey, another one of those guys, who had vowed to suffer a wound for every year he spent as a Protestant heretic. That's hardcore, that's metal. Uh, and had led the brutal repression of those Austrian peasant rebels we talked about, mm-hmm. uh, and had earned the nickname Scarred Heinz. After being shot up at White Mountain and left for dead, <laughs> this guy is like a. This guy is like your empire defied. You know, he's he's also like a, your classic like second in command. You know, a Bond villain yes. always has a scary goon. A scary guy, yeah, like uh, yeah, a Charles, one eye shot out or Charles something. Charles Dance in uh, Last Action Hero. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So he's uh, Poppenheim is the scary goon. Yeah, to, he's uh, a very scary goon to uh, Tilly's army. He issued his 18,000 Imperial and Catholic League troops a wine ration and then sent them into the city from five directions simultaneously. Thus fortified by alcohol, driven stir-crazy by months of siege duty, the soldiers rushed forward. Those Croatian cavalry found an undefended side gate and tore through the city streets, interrupting the city council while it was in the middle of arguing with the Swedish commander about whether to surrender or not. More of Tilly's troops poured into the city. Soon, a fire broke out, its flames carried by winds across the entire town. It was probably set by Pappenheim to flush out musketeers hiding in a house by one of the city gates. Later, the fighter was attributed to the malevolence of the Catholic forces or to a mythical Magdeburg maiden who supposedly set herself ablaze rather than to fall into imperial hands. Whatever the cause, by the end of the day, 1,700 of the 1,900 buildings had burnt to the ground. Tilly attempted to prevent his troops from pillaging and was able to protect the thousand or so people who took refuge in the city's cathedral. But after months spent suffering, underpaid and starving in siege trenches, their lust for blood and loot could not be constrained. Soldiers plundered wine cellars, drinking themselves into unconsciousness, only to be suffocated by the fire, mugs in hand. Civilians were tortured for the location of their valuables and murdered. A memoir later written by a survivor recalled, We saw very many dead in the alleys and a number of women lying totally naked with their heads in a large beer barrel which was standing full of water in the street. They had been pushed in and drowned, but half their bodies and legs were hanging out, which was a wretched spectacle. The generals gestured at chivalry. Pappenheim himself placed Christian Wilhelm, the archbishop, under his personal protection, and Tilly was seen riding his horse through the city, holding an infant he had taken from the arms of its dead mother. 
Nevertheless, of the 30,000 inhabitants of Magdeburg, fewer than 5,000 survived the sack. Most of them, women, taken as spoils of war into the imperial camp. It took two weeks for the wagon loads of corpses to be cleared from the burning city. Pappenheim later wrote, I consider it cost the city more than 20,000 souls, and most certainly no greater horror and divine justice have been seen since the destruction of Jerusalem. All our soldiers have become rich men. Five days after the sack, Count Tilly rededicated the cathedral with full procession of troops, with their colors and cannons firing into the walls of the city. Magdeburg Cathedral was once again a beacon of Catholicism, standing over a deserted heap of death and ash. The sack and burning of Magdeburg was immediately seized by the Protestant side as a propaganda weapon against the emperor. In 1631, over 200 pamphlets and 40 broadsheets about the sack were published across the continent. With titles like Copy of Letter from Magdeburg and Short but True and Proper Report How the Capture and Destruction of the Ancient and Famous City of Magdeburg Took Place. They gloried in the horrifying details and condemned the imperial and league forces as blood-drunk savages, no better than Turks. (laughs) But of course, since the authors of these pamphlets were Protestants, some of them couldn't totally let the Magiburgers off the hook. (laughs) The short and proper report observed that the city fathers must have faltered in their faith and neglected to seek penance from the Lord if such a harsh punishment were ever to occur. With such benighted leadership, it was inevitable that just as Christ was crucified, that much innocent blood was spilled to such ungodly lands <laughs> R.I.P. to them, but I'm different. The shadow of Magdeburg would loom over the rest of the war. Terms like Magdeburgization and Magdeburg Quarter would be used as grim shorthand by the Protestants for the complete destruction and violent eradication of their enemies. The same justice they had been shown at Magdeburg. More immediately, it brought those Protestant forces on the fence about the Swedish intervention into more confident alliance with the king. The United Provinces soon joined the French in directing subsidies to his efforts and made plans to go on the offensive into the Spanish Flanders. Stupid Spanish Flanders. Stupid (laughs) Spanish Flanders. George William of Brandenburg, previously attempting to walk the line between Imperial and Swedish forces, finally capitulated and signed a treaty with the king, offering key forts and resources of Brandenburg to his cause. One month after the siege, on June 22, 1631, Gustavus Adolphus and George Williams spent a wild day and night of feasting and drinking together in Berlin. While Gustavus and George William partied, Tilly's victory at Magdeburg was already turning to ash in his mouth. Bizarrely, Richelieu had signed a secret treaty with Maximilian of Bavaria, recognizing Maximilian as the rightful elector of Palatine and binding each other in support if attacked and not to attack each other's enemies. 
But Tilly was not just the imperial general, but the general of Maximilian's Catholic League forces and was now bound by treaty not to attack France's allies, namely the Swedes, <laughs> even though the same treaty recognized Maximilian's electorate, even while one of Gustavus's stated goals was returning the electorate to Frederick V. And my God, Freddie V is still hanging out in the wings <laughs> trying to get all his goddamn claims restored. Oh, my God. Could you give it a rest, dude? He must, that the ship must, has sailed, man. That must have been the most annoying court to be a part of, just hanging around in the Hague as this guy's sending letters being like, like, hey, can I get my can I get my crown back? Oh, just just embarrassing. Very embarrassing, gentlemen. You can really imagine Frederick V uh, receiving news of the horrific apocalyptic sack of Magdeburg and just being like, oh, did I do that? Oh, geez. <laughs> oh, boy, well, I really didn't good, hope that this would well go. Well done. Uh, <laughs> uh, fair play to them. <laughs> I, I know what I'm owned. So what is Richelieu up to here? I mean, broadly, the idea is that he can be conducting this side diplomacy because he considers gustavus adolphus basically a, a puppet that he can control yes his i his hope is that he can by supporting both maximilian's catholic league and the swedish lutheran intervention he is able to keep it so that they both check the habsburgs while checking each other right that's what he's hoping to be able to maintain is a balance there but if gustavus is too successful it will throw off the entire balance. Like it really so only thinking, works if all three of these poles are in equal power. Exactly. If anybody gets the upper hand here in a significant way, it, it undermines his broader goals. But, you know, that's why you, that's why we play the games. You yes. got to roll the dice sometimes. <laughs> it, it truly is a uh, game of thrones. Yeah. So lacking options with his troops starving, unable to engage Gustavus directly, Tilly marches his army into Saxony. And finally, the second recalcitrant elector, John George, old beer George, was forced by events to take a side. Get off the fucking fence, George. And on September 11th, mm. 1631, he signed a treaty with Gustavus Adolphus, allowing the Swede to enter Saxony and take command of the elector's troops, with the key provision being, quote, as long as the emergency lasts. So even in his alliance, he's trying to find, put, a, put an out for himself. He's never wanting clause. to commit too much. He just wants everyone to, can everyone just vibe out, please? <laughs> Can everyone just sit in a hall and stuff a goose fat in your mouth and have a trumpet three feet from your face? <laughs> the giant stein of beer. And just get shit faced. If everyone could just get, I, I kind of feel like this whole time during the 30s where John George is this, he's like the, uh, he's a beer version of like a weed guy going, man, if I could just get the emperor and, <laughs> and uh, Gustavus Adolphus, if I could just get them in a room and just get them fucking Hamburg. We saw this whole thing out. Just we could night. make all of this go away tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Tilly had made it to Leipzig in Saxony. And after the city initially put up resistance to his pressure for food and quarter for his troops, he was able to occupy it on September 16th. Tilly then sent his army to guard the north of the town. On September 15th, Gustavus's army of 23,000 linked with the Saxon force of 16,000 men, led by von Arman and John George himself at Dubin, and went moving south to Leipzig. The Saxon army was resplendent in fresh uniforms, while the Swedes, who had been marching themselves ragged, appeared to one observer, quote, like kitchen servants with their uncleanly rags. On September 17th, the two armies met at Breitenfeld. The imperial force was only slightly fewer than the Protestants, 37,000 to Gustavus's 39,000. Tilly was older, cautious, and patient. Pappenheim was young, daring, and impetuous. Classic situation. Mm -hmm. uh, there was apparently a legend in Pappenheim's family that someday a son of their house would conquer an invading king, and perhaps Pappenheim felt that call to destiny. 
While scouting outside of Leipzig at Breitenfeld, Pappenheim's forces spotted the Swedes, and he sent word to Tilly that he could not safely retreat. They would have to make battle. Tilly was annoyed, felt his hand was forced, but deployed the army forward. As soon as the Imperials were in range of the Protestants, they started an artillery bombardment of the Swedish position. The Imperials, arranged in a wide, narrow line of the now classic squares of Pike and Schott, the Tercio Formation, immediately noticed the new arrangement of Gustavus's troops. Looser squares of cavalry, checkered with smaller squares of musket formations, both much more mobile and responsive to changing battlefield conditions. Furthermore, the musketeers had been drilled in a deadly new technique. The first line would kneel so that the first two lines could fire at once. Then they would peel to the back of the group and reload while the next two lines fired. As the two sides exchanged fire for nearly two hours, the Swedes were able to fire their muskets at three to five times the rates of the Imperials. Uh, Another factor increasing attrition of Imperial forces is that uh, in this day, cannonballs did not explode upon impact. They just rolled down the battlefield and you were essentially bowling for your enemy's troops. Now, because the Tercio is a much deeper formation, uh, during the artillery bombardment, uh, these cannonballs can just bounce through lines and lines of Imperial <laughs> troops and take them down, whereas the much more uh, shallow and more mobile and, and wider, more widely spread Swedes uh, are able to avoid that kind of damage. Uh, uh, eventually, Pappenheim loses patience and orders his cavalry to charge into the cavalry on the Swedish right. The Swedish cavalry and musket combo proved resilient, and the line held, with Pappenheim's forces charging again and again into point-blank Swedish musket fire. Believing Pappenheim's charge to be a signal, Tilly's right flank cavalry charged the Saxon militia on the Swedish left. The militia held for a time, but they lacked the discipline of the Swedes. Soon, John George, your oh, George, your George, goddammit, spooked and retreated north, riding nonstop 12 for? miles straight to Ellenburg. What are you good for, dude? The Saxon line dissolved into chaos and followed, chased north by the bellowing red-cloaked Croats who led the Imperial cavalry. Gustavus's left flank was now dangerously exposed, and though he had not ordered either charge, Tilly himself saw the opening and commanded his main mass of Imperial pike and shot tercios to sweep the Swedish left flank. But though more powerful, these tercios are achingly slow compared to the Swedish formations. So while the mass of Imperial troops crawled across the broad field to take advantage of the opening, Gustavus commanded his left side to reposition at a right angle to his main line to basically move and uh, resolder a line at a 90-degree angle to where it had been in advance of the Imperial charge. That means they were able to meet Tilly's assault head-on. Gustavus appeared to be everywhere, according to sources, screaming his troops along until he was hoarse, unarmored save for his billowing cloak. Back on the Swedish right, after rebuffing seven charges from the impetuous Pappenheim, the Swedish cavalry general, Benair, finally ordered a counterattack against the exhausted Imperial troops and drove them off the field and back south. Pappenheim and his men, thinking only of the booty they had stored up in Leipzig, and retreated back to the city. Gustavus Adolphus then appeared and personally took command of Benair's cavalry, storming them back across the field, now behind Tilly's army, and to the Imperial's unguarded artillery. Gustavus seizes the artillery and, because of his combined forces, turns Tilly's own guns on the rear of Tilly's army, now engaged in a fearsome fighting with the Swedish left flank. Remnants of the Saxon cavalry reappear for the north and join in the battery of the Imperials. Tilly's arm is now caught in a death trap. 
Swedish infantry and cavalry to their front, Saxons to their right, their own guns battering them from their left. Till he knows he's lost and orders a retreat. The Imperial army flees, pursued by Swedish cavalry. As the sun set, the thick dust cleared. 12,000 Imperial troops lay dead on the battlefield and scattered along the road back to Leipzig. All 20 Imperial cannons were captured. 7,000 Imperial troops had been captured, and after some short contract negotiations, they were now Swedish troops. Tilly himself was wounded in the neck and had his arms shattered. After 12 years of conflict, the Protestant forces had finally scored a W. The first Battle of Breitenfeld, uh, spoiler alert, sorry, yes, it's the first Battle of Breitenfeld, is the bass drop in the EDM song that is the Thirty Years' War. Any remaining skepticism about Gustavus's ability or intentions among Germany's Protestant worthies evaporated as the news spread. The victory had been so complete that some speculated that the Swedes wouldn't stop until they'd plundered Rome and clapped the Pope in irons. Protestant preachers in the pay of the king walked the countryside in advance of the Swedish army, rhapsodizing in village squares and taverns about this lion of the north and his holy army. Catholics saw in him the embodiment of doom, as the Jesuit order, in the words of the Swedish intelligentsier, comforted their credulous novices with his being Antichrist, and that he should reign three years and a half and no longer. (laughs) It's like, don't worry, guys. Yes, he's kicking our asses. But he's the Antichrist, so three and a half years. <laughs> Which I'm sure is based on some kind of bizarre biblical numerology. Yes, of course. We, as we see here, Tilly led the remnants of his army west into Westphalia to meet up with reinforcements, allowing Gustavus to pick up local German auxiliaries as his forces relentlessly marched southwest along the course of the River Main. In November, Gustavus marched triumphantly into Frankfurt, which observers noted he was now in this very same room where the emperors at their coronation used to be entertained. There may be a sign of good luck in that, and perchance this may not be the last time that he shall there be seated. Mm. By December, Heidelberg, the capital of the Palatinate, the capital of reformed Protestantism, where this whole bloody disaster had first been conceived of by a coven of alchemists, religious fanatics, and opportunists, was in Swedish hands. In April 1632, the Swedish army met the Imperials at Rain and drove them off, killing Tilly with an arquebus or maybe cannon blast that shattered his thigh. R.I.P. He was 73. Now, Tilly was a career yes. army guy. He had been on horseback his entire adult life. Can you imagine, like, 50 years, being 73, sleeping yeah. in 17th century sleep, tents, in tents. He's on been horseback riding a horse every 10 day hours life. a day? He's, he's in, into, into his 70s he's doing this. And all and, and just bouncing around and having to deal with all these dumb, water-headed nobles writing him letters, telling him to be somewhere, telling him they can't pay him, they, tell they can't keep the troops in the field, telling him he's got to go, oh, well, figure it out. Find, find the money somewhere. All to take an arquebus to the leg and just Ooh, die. And just get bleed out on the battlefield. Damn. <sighs> Rip to Tilly. Rip to Tilly. He was a real one. Shortly afterward, the Swedes captured that famous city that we all love to name things after, Augsburg. (laughs) 
The town's evangelical citizens opened the doors to Gustavus in the face of their Catholic city council and greeted the king to a hero's welcome. Broadsheets commemorating the day were published soon after. A Catholic priest in the city noted that the Protestant population treated the king and his troops as God's angel and their redeemers. But the cost of buffing up city defenses and quartering Swedish garrisons would soon test the patience of even the most enthusiastic Protestant burger. Yes, yes. We all we're all happy uh we're all happy that we're this God's apps. herald on earth has arrived in the city until somebody has to front the check. Exactly. We we love ordering the apps. We don't love splitting up afterwards. Yes. On May 17th, 1632, Gustavus entered Maximilian of Bavaria's capital city of Munich with poor old Frederick V tagging along in his heads. That's right. He blew all the way into the heartland of Catholic Germany. Uh, he only stayed 10 days, long enough to strip the city of anything of value, while his troops contended with a guerrilla campaign by Catholic peasants resisting Swedish raiding parties. Now, it, let's step back for a second here. So as he's leaving Munich, we have seen in 10 months, Gustavus lead an army on a 500-mile path of conquest in a diagonal line from the northeast Baltic shore of Pomerania to the southwestern black forests of Bavaria. A small Swedish army had broken off and taken Mecklenburg along the Baltic to the west of Pomerania. So you have this diagonal swath and this uh, also this Baltic beachhead commanded within 10 months in a, in a war that had been fought dulcetorily for over a decade with yes. no accumulated advantage other than just the slow erosion of Protestant forces. Um, along the way, Gustavus claimed all German lands as Swedish fiefs to be sequestered by the king upon the death of their current sovereigns, just like poor old Duke of Pomerania. So in the process, he had finally turned the German conflict into a truly continental contest with a formal alliance of Sweden and the major German princes supported financially and diplomatically by France, Britain, and the Dutch Republic arrayed against the Emperor, the Catholic League, and Habsburg Spain. Okay, so while we're taking stock, let's look at some of these other players in this game right now. So first, let's back up a bit and look at France. Even as Cardinal Richelieu was busy planting the seeds of a new Protestant alliance with the Swedes in Germany, he was dealing with his own religious conflict at home. Tensions between the Huguenot Protestants and the royal government had grown throughout the 1620s. And in 1627, when a fleet of English ships attempted to reinforce the Huguenot positions on the Atlantic coast, the situation erupted into a full-on revolt. The Huguenot Rebellion created some strange bedfellows in the midst of the Thirty Years' War, with the English attempting to relieve the Huguenot and France pursuing an alliance with Spain against the Protestant coalition, while renting the ships from the Dutch, who were also receiving French support in their war with the Spanish. This all climaxes with the dramatic Siege of La Rochelle, the fortified Huguenot stronghold. La Rochelle held out for over a year against the royal siege, sometimes under the personal command of Richelieu. But in 1628, the city surrendered. Its population had dwindled from over 25,000 to 5,000 from the months of brutal deprivation. Richelieu's campaign against the Huguenots was a masterful exercise in slow rolling. Careful not to violate the letter of the Edict of Nantes, Richelieu nonetheless carried out a series of provocations that had the effect of rousing Huguenot resistance providing a pretext for their eventual suppression. Once the Huguenot forces were bottled up in La Rochelle, royal troops, in an astounding feat of engineering and under the watchful eye of Richelieu, who patrolled the beaches in a buff coat and boots, built a seawall nearly a mile long to cut off the city from amphibious resupply. 
Although the Edict of Nantes wasn't rescinded until 1685, the fall of La Rochelle meant the effective end of the Huguenots as an independent military and political force in France. This is only part of Richelieu's grand strategy to enlarge the authority and capacity of the French state. In addition, he seated the Parisian court with his creatures, men who owed their positions and therefore loyalty to the cardinal and no one else. Richelieu also sold provincial offices to the highest bidder with a yearly fee required to retain a hereditary right to the post. Now, this raised revenue for the crown while keeping the aristocracy ever suspicious of the enlargement of royal authority, competing with each other for these lucrative sinecures. Occasionally, he would create an office, accept payment for, to fill it, then abolish the office. A less dramatic version of the old papal practice of selling a venal office and then poisoning the purchaser. <laughs> the policy of raising state revenues by selling venal offices would end up significantly hampering France's ability to compete with her new neighbors in the coming centuries. But at this point, it was a handy addition to Richelieu's Machiavellian toolbook. And just an aside on Richelieu, he had some of the best fits of this period. He the, is a drip king. The, no the cardinal like religious garb with like a military breastplate and like soldier's boots. Yeah, he would. That's a real would, strong look. It was, a, it was an, well, be, like those are, you're taking all the best traditions of finery and bringing them together in one man, the martial, the, the, uh, the spiritual, and then the aristocratic. It's yes. all in one glorious package. So while this was happening, France was also fighting another protracted conflict in Italy, the War of Mantuan Succession, which is another one of those classic high school history test bud buzzwords. Yeah, you got your Mantuan Succession, you got your Austrian Succession, yes, there's a Spanish course. Succession, and there's somewhere. You don't really need to get too much into the War of Mantuan Succession. It's another one of these things that we've talked about that where you know they're just fighting a dynastic uh, dispute in northern Italy over these uh, these rich. Uh, city-states. Would they be allied to Spain or France? Yes, exactly. This one results in France and Spain fighting for control over the same area they're always fighting over, the key Italian positions on the Spanish roads that the Habsburgs relied on to move troops and goods up into the Netherlands. The result is, after pouring huge amounts of military resources and wealth into the conflict, the Spanish make no substantial gains, creating huge disturbances in their operations in the Netherlands and affecting their ability to reinforce their Austrian cousins. The Mantuan War illustrates just how challenging a position the Habsburgs in Spain and Austria were in. They're treated by their enemies as a single power, but they were never able to effectively coordinate their policies or strategies because they could not coordinate their interests. One of the things that hampered imperial efforts to crush the Danes and secure the Baltic was the diversion of 30,000 troops to Italy in 1630. Wallenstein had begged Ferdinand not to send them, and all they ended up doing was bringing bubonic plague, <laughs> which sparked an outbreak that killed 35% of the population of northern Italy by the end of the next year. The death toll in the besieged city of Mantua itself was over 70%. The result critically weakened both Spain and Austria, deepened papal hostility to the Habsburgs, and hastened the ascension of France as the dominant power in Europe. Yes, I believe it's in the Wedgwood there. It says something like that Ferdinand could have perhaps achieved some sort of dominance, but he had to drag the corpse of Spain along with him. Yes. But this corpse was full it's of money. It's full of silver. It's, it's full of silver. It's just getting it out. It's like you're banging on this thing to try to get the fucking money out of it, but it's because its internal structures are insufficient to the task of rendering their uh, accessible revenue into real productive force. And I'm always banging on this, but it's just looking at here, we're seeing all these different like ingredients of how to build a state. 
Richelieu uh, with his bureaucratic uh, absolutism, Gustavus with his military command state, the Dutch with their merchant republic, Ferdinand with a Catholicized empire. They all have one tool, but you need to put it all together to to get a functional state. Yeah, the Habsburgs more than anything. Yes, they have the they have. They have tapped into new world resources and mm-hmm. changed the game at like a basic level. Like they broke through like scarcity constraints there, uh, but that's all they can do. Uh, they have otherwise an antiquated and sclerotic structure, uh, and nobody else has anything that can touch that. But they have something else, but they lack another thing, and, uh, and so they just fight against each other frantically because of the crisis conditions that they are having to accommodate. But they cannot. None can co- come to the top yet. Because none of these ingredients have yet cohered in one polity. Exactly. Foreshadowing. So what made Richelieu's strategy all the more remarkable is that he accomplished all of this under the constant threat of being removed from power at any moment and executed. <laughs> so during this period, the Cardinal's hold on young Louis XIII was strong, but just as strong was the hatred of the spurned queen mother, Maria de Medici, who had been Richelieu's original patron right, and who he had turned on. He had originally been a devout. He had mm-hmm. been one of the Spanish-sympathized uh, Catholic uh, party and then seeing where the turn was coming switched over to uh the uh, the <clears throat> politique side so she hates him as a traitor as does her younger son gaston so louis at this point is not fathered a son and that means that gaston his younger brother is the heir to the throne some real house of the dragon shit and here this is some gambo uh, so Marie and Gaston had that, that devote fa- faction in the French court that wanted a holy alliance with Spain against the Protestant heretics and pressed for a resolution to the Mantuan War at the that Diet of Regensburg. Where Wallenstein got fired. Right. Uh, if the frequently ill Louis died, that's the other thing. He's one of these. He's not one of the robust guys. He's, he's one of the, the little, little coughing guys. <laughs> if the frequently ill Louis died, Richelieu would be dismissed at least probably executed and French foreign policy reoriented towards Spain. Right. Now this... All this conflict came to the head on the Day of the Dupes. Great day. Great name in, for a uh, day. November of 1630, when the Queen Mother confronted her son and the Cardinal in his chambers, demanding that Louis choose between the two once and for all. Louis gave no answer and fled to his hunting lodge. Now, Richelieu, Marie, and the rest of court all assumed that this was the end of the Cardinal. With his enemies gathering to celebrate in the Luxembourg Palace, Richelieu traveled to the King's hunting palace to face the music. There, Louis reaffirmed his commitment to the cardinal and his policy. Richelieu's court enemies were arrested, the queen mother was exiled, and the Regensburg Treaty was abrogated. It was either another example of the king's fecklessness, or Louis basically invented the prank show genre here. (laughs) Uh, Spain was forced to agree to peace on less favorable terms in Mantua, and the cardinal was free to pursue his alliance with Protestant Sweden. Although that policy didn't look as sound a year later, with Gustavus Adolphus, the master of Germany and capable of posing his own threat to French supremacy. It's kind of like a bachelor rose ceremony, but just deciding who gets exiled or executed. Yep, yep. All the cuts, the dramatic music, and King Louis Thirteenth. like, I've yep. made a decision. Yep. You could look at this as a, a moment where, like, this is, like, a real hinge point of history because it just comes down to this guy's decision. Mm-hmm. That would have been the end of Richelieu if he had wanted it to be. Why not? And I think it comes down to he wanted to be king mm-hmm. and... Richelieu had a vision of what how he could govern as a king. 
the, the devout faction at the end of, at the in that moment of time mm-hmm. is asking the the kingdom to be dis, dis, devolved basically right to to uh to to the power devolved away to some abstract uh papacy and to the fucking nobility and away from the dynasty plus Richelieu was just a chad and and I he imagine, was a chad and he I imagine he was his, very he, he, convincing honeyed words and he looked so good yes how are you gonna say no to a man dra- dripped out so speaking of the Spanish. The war in the Netherlands had gone hot and taken a turn. And very sorry, but I've got some tough words coming up here, so we'll see how I do. In 1629, Dutch forces were able to lay siege and eventually take the city of Sergotenbosch. Sir, I think it's Sergotenbosch. It's uh, the name of the city is starts with an apostrophe. <laughs> apostrophe. The first letter <laughs> in the name is an apostrophe. It's an apostrophe S dash small S small S dash then, dash, then large H. Hergottenbosch. Hergottenbosch. I'm going to call this Sergottenbosch. Sergottenbosch. And I include <laughs> and I include the name of the city basically to make myself try to pronounce it. Of good course. luck. That was good. I think we got there. Sergottenbosch. Sergottenbosch. The city Sir was getting bush. <laughs> Probably still getting bush. The city was considered impregnable. It was the main base of Spanish operations in the United Provinces and loyal to the Spanish for decades. Its capture was seen as a major black eye for the Spanish and a turning point in the conflict. And also interesting here, the siege was apparently a bit of a European tourist destination because of the ingenuity uh, for which it was conducted. Uh, military minded nobles from across the continent were coming to admire and learn from Frederick Henry. Uh, who is the military commander of the Dutch United Forces novel methods, which included, of course, building a series of dikes and pump systems. They're to, Dutch folks. Yes, they've got they're, one. They got one move. They're the dozers from Fraggle Rock. Yes, you get them together. They're going to start building a dike. They're yes. going to start building a canal. So we built a series of dikes and pump systems to drain the water from the town's civil defense. Yeah, it's defenses. wild. And also present there a bunch of guys who are going to be players later in our story in the english civil war with the guys like thomas fairfax and jacob astley just hanging around watching these dikes get built you know we've been making some fun of the of these uh uh, these calvinists on this show but just think about that you've literally reversed the course of of water you have you have done what what moses did Mm -hmm. you have stopped you've you've parted waters just by your mutual action yes your coordinated effort has done this has wrought a miracle of course of course you are the elect how could you not be look what you're capable of look at works you're capable of the Dutch were rallying civic militias and fielding massive armies at this point, sometimes reaching over 120,000 men mobilized, which is insane considering the Netherlands, an area the size of like Maryland in the 17th century, to field 120,000 men. Stadtholder Prince Frederick Henry of Orange, the, command- the successor of Maurice. Yes. The commander of the Dutch forces pressed the advantage and by summer 1632, with his successful siege of Maastricht, had pushed the Spanish basically back into the Spanish Netherlands a.k.a. Belgium. So basically the entire war since the end of the truce is a waste of time. Right. Those were natural borders, basically. At this point, there was a push for peace negotiations, which went nowhere. And if you remember the remonstrance Arminians debate from a few episodes ago, well, here it is again. Matt. So the Dutch East India Company had been established. We talked about it to Mm -hmm. manage the risks of the various Indonesian, Southeast Asian and Indian trade networks that at that point been funded by these cartels of urban merchants concentrated in the commercial capital of Amsterdam. The East India Company brought these disparate projects under one corporate umbrella and administration. It would minimize risk and raise funds through the sale 
of stock certificates to private investors. This company, of course, was an arm of the nascent Dutch Republic, which was politically dominated by the regents, the same urban merchant grandees who owned controlling stock in the East India Company. The aim of the state and the aim of capital are in alignment, and that is to extend Dutch control over Asians' trade routes, using the profits reaped to fund a holy war to liberate the entire Netherlands from the Jesuitical Spanish yoke (laughs) and make even more money doing it. Stacking those guilders, son. (laughs) But there were urban burghers, many from the smaller, less influential cities outside of Holland, who were left out of the patriotic networks that gathered around the East India Company stockholders and had an interest at trying their hand at extending Dutch trade networks to the Caribbean. However, at this point, the Caribbean is largely a Spanish lagoon, and the expense of competing with the Spanish there was more than the penny-pinching Amsterdam regions were willing to bear. Johan van Oldenbarneveld, remember him? Yes. The official who represented Amsterdam business interests on the diplomatic stage agreed as part of the 12 years truce to restrict Dutch trade and shipping in the Caribbean. But when Oldenbarneveld was beheaded in a quasi-military coup by Maurice of Nassau's war party, which was headed in the cities by rivals to Amsterdam, it meant the war would recommence. And with it, Dutch colonization efforts in the Americas. So, in 1621, same year the 12 years truce expired, the Dutch West India Company was chartered, using the same basic corporate governance structure as the East India Company, with board seats reserved for set numbers of representatives from the different regions of the Netherlands. Amsterdam still had the most seats, but the balance of interests on the board was dominated by the young money hustlers from the surrounding provinces. East India Company ships settled colonies and established trading networks from the Hudson River Valley in North America to Brazil in the south. And hey, this, this is where uh, New Amsterdam gets This is where started. New Amsterdam shows up. Good old as, New York. The very good old beginning. New York was New Amsterdam, as well as outposts in Western and Southern Africa. They also engaged in an aggressive privateering campaign against Spanish treasure and trade ships in the Caribbean. This piracy war climaxed with the Battle of Matanza Bay in 1628, which saw a Dutch privateer squadron capture the entire 31-ship Spanish silver fleet that held the entire year's tribute from the colonies to the crown in Madrid. They snatched the entire bag. Yes. The Dutch seized over 11 million guilders and other valuable trade goods and used the proceeds to pay the Dutch army that finally took the city of Herzbottenbush. Remember that guy? Yes. They only were able to keep those guys in the tr- in the trenches by giving them Spain's own goddamn silver. And you're like, if you're the Spanish general there, you're like, they're paying their guys with our money? Oh, oh just God. the brutalist vote. It's like, this is a machine that works fighting one that is breaking down. Exactly. Nevertheless, the cost of fighting the war drained the company coffers and provided scant return to the investors back home, which helped return the political initiative to the peace party in Amsterdam. The network of colonies, trading posts, and supply chains built by the West India Company became the triangle trade infrastructure that would in time form the material base for the entire political economy of the Atlantic world. And which we're still basically living in the yes. shadow of. This is what we're this trying to tell you, folks. This is where the bones are being forged. When this that is where guy the, comes the, back to life in Hellraiser, yes. when, he, when the blood and sinew drift up from the boards, that's what we're seeing happen of the way the modern political economy yes. yeah. works. It, it, is, it, is these, it is stuff moving from Europe to Africa to the Americas. And then back. That is, that is going to build all of our institutions. And the way that capitalism unfolds is de- determined by that relationship. And it's happening all right here, 
with these goofy Dutch guys building dikes around Sir Gottenbush. Yes, yep, just so that they can beat the Spanish. Yes. We're, look, we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to build a capitalist god that we're going to worship and destroy the world with. We just want to get the Spanish out of here. Yes. So that we can we can all worship as we see fit. Of course. We can live in accordance with our values. And who doesn't want that? It's on its face a noble pursuit. Yep. So all the while, the politics of the Republic revolved not around uh, these questions of corporate competition, but around more emotive issues, such as the prosecution of the war and the precise nature of God's grace. Always arguing about it. Yes. At the same time that the Dutch are inventing the modern slave trade with their string of trade forts along the West African coast where prisoners of native wars were traded for firearms and sundries then shipped across the Atlantic to be worked to death, clearing the jungles and swamps of the Americas. They were also engaging in refined debates about the destination of their souls. They're figuring out who are the good guys and how to define them. The Armenians, though defeated at Dort, remember Dort? <laughs> the sign-out of Dort. They got defeated. They got BTFO at the sign-out of Dort. They were still protesting that a god who created men just to condemn them was a child burning ants with a magnifying glass. Meanwhile, the Orthodox Calvinists insist that God's conception of righteousness was distinct, was as distinct and distant from fallen man's puny ideas of the good and could only be faintly glimpsed in the unfolding of nature. Now, both of these conceptions of God are based on an immaculate chain of logic spelled out in academic volumes, popular pamphlets, church sermons, and family table talks across the United Provinces. With the end of Catholic ritual life, the physical sensation of working a rosary was replaced with the mental action of working out the path of one's salvation, of reaching out to know the mind of God through reasoning towards him. The greatest aid in that work is the evidence of the senses, not senses as in bestowers of pleasure, but senses as objective recorders of reality. The Orthodox Calvinists affirm that we can use our senses to confirm just who amongst us God has chosen to bestow his earthly blessings to. So these gummerous Calvinists ruled in the grim ranks of the Dutch army, in the cabins of slave ships and on plantation verandas, in the more serene counting houses of Amsterdam, however, where the grubby business of capital accumulation is sterilized into a collection of inert numbers on paper, religious life began to turn away from the legacy of Calvin. Nonconforming religious dissidents thrived in the gap between church and state created by the Calvinist social model of congregational autonomy. This was often a Christianity based less on mentally tabulating and comparing levels of sin than on mystical experience, charity, and a politics of social uplift. It was this permissive Dutch religious culture that the English Puritan refugees, collectively traumatized by the relentless blasphemies and repressions of the English Anglican Church, fled to North America in order to escape. It's all happening. It's all it's happening. All coming right, together, it's all baby. coming together and right here. All, this is and, why we did this series. And, and what's stopping it from what's stopping it from slowing down? What's allowing it to emerge is Spain cannot stop this. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk more about Spain next episode. We won't. We won't. This episode's already pretty long. We'll talk more about where Spain is. Suffice it to say that uh, Olivares's attempt to impose some sort of centralizing state building discipline on the Spanish war effort fails apart in the face of regional revolts and resistance from the autonomous powers in the various regions of the Spanish Empire. 
both in the colonies and in Iberia. So, back to Germany. Spring into summer, 1632. Gustavus Adolphus's name was preached and sung across Protestant Germany. He had maybe 80,000 men under his command throughout the country as the various dukes, regents, landgraves, and margraves of the lesser principalities swore oath to him. As he had driven to Munich, he cajoled John George to take his Saxon army into Bohemia. Though most had expected Gustavus to take Bohemia himself after Breitenfeld and push straight to Vienna... Gustavus reasoned, probably accurately given the guy's track record, he could not trust John George's loyalty in holding central <laughs> Germany, which is a fair belt. Loyal. Yes. As soon as you get him out of your sight, he's going to go back to the beer yep. hall and say, I'm, I'm done with all of this. Yep. Yes. Uh, and so if he made the elector invade the imperial lands of Bohemia, then John George's die would be cast irrevocably with the Swedes. And there was another enticement. Albrecht Wallenstein, remember him, had generously offered to simply cede Prague to the Protestant forces. And on November 15th, 1631, the Saxon army under Van Armen had taken Prague without a fight. Protestants in Prague again. Protestants in They're Prague. Back, it's baby. back. They did it. Ah, Wallenstein. It turns out his petulant patience had been the right strategy. The Habsburgs were, at this moment, properly fucked. Spain was locked out of the Netherlands by the Dutch naval victories and the closing of the Spanish road by Gustavus's conquests and its treasury nearly depleted from the Dutch simply taking a year's worth of silver. They're taking my jack and they're getting less and less from the colonies, which are growing more and more independent of them. Ferdinand was bottled up in his imperial holdings and with no funds from his Spanish cousins, there was just one guy he could turn to. Through November and December 1631, the emperor sent a series of letters to Wallenstein, some written in his own hand pleading the general to retake his post and resume funding the imperial cause, and eventually sent a delegation to Wallenstein not so much to negotiate terms, but simply to ask the general what he wanted. And on the last day of 1631, Wallenstein relented and said he would raise an army by the following March. So Gustavus's smashing victories had scared Maximilian fully back into the arms of the emperor, and he agreed to submit the remaining pieces of the Catholic League army to Wallenstein's overall command. With Count Tilly dead, there was no serious competitor for power at the top of the new imperial army, which took rapid shape as Wallenstein, given access to the revenues of the Habsburg imperial lands, activated huge numbers of veterans who had been at loose ends since their demobilization. The cold weather, as well as the deprivations and plagues spread by the maraudering armies, had destroyed significant parts of Germany's rural and urban economy. Many veterans were willing to sign up for half the bonus money they had received upon their first enlistment. Wallenstein's forces gathered in the south, while Pappenheim brought together the tattered remnants of the League and Imperial armies in the northwest. Wallenstein had leveraged the emperor's desperation to secure for himself total military and diplomatic authority over the war effort, answerable only to Ferdinand himself. He had the right to issue patents to military recruiters and to appoint officers. The emperor retained to himself the right to grant promotion. While Wallenstein had fewer allies at court in Vienna than he had before his dismissal, he made up for this by recruiting a tight-knit group of senior officers to surround himself with, securing their loyalty with the distribution of plundered treasuries 
and estates. His chief aide was his son-in-law, Adam Erdman Tricht von Lippa. Perhaps this time, Wallenstein could build sufficient independent power to neutralize opposition from the electors or the emperor himself. Perhaps, if God favored the venture, he could leverage his position between the emperor and Gustavus to secure himself an independent political power base, maybe even the imperial crown. So he is able. So he is now building a, uh, a military machine, use, reactivating the network that he had built in the first place that is now going to create a material base to a war economy. I kind of think of, at this phase, Wallenstein as, as kind of like a Saruman at yes. in the Two Towers, turning uh, Isengard into the Orc Factory. Yes. That he has uh, turned his lands into this like perfect military machine. His, his duchy of Friedland that he'd created for himself, whole cloth out of Bohemia, had become just one vast magazine for supplying food, clothing, uh, all the stores needed to power these roving music festival armies yeah. uh, he had uh, um, sponsored the creation of munition factories and mills he had grinding night and day on 24-hour shifts uh, bakers baking hundreds of thousands of loaves brewers brewing weavers weaving he had built a fully military society yes uh, for which was uh, fully committed to the purpose of war uh, but also vulnerable because like all war-based economies, it is parasitical mm-hmm. and it does not have the same social uh, embeddedness that even the remote emperor does. And uh, we'll see that play out. So we just mentioned that Wallenstein at this time there, you know, he was writing letters where he or it was said that that the words were escaping his mouth that perhaps the imperial crown might pass from the Habsburgs to himself. Well, hell, even Adolphus himself was musing aloud about the possibility of wearing the imperial crown. With the electors refusing to crown Ferdinand's son, Ferdinand, uh, king of the Romans, back in 1630 at Regensburg, continued Habsburg claim of the title Holy Roman Empire seemed, at this moment, weak enough to at least be questioned. Come on, what do you think, guys? Gustavus Adolphus? Holy, Holy Roman, Roman Emperor? Emperor? What it's do you got think? a ring to it. Got Emperor a ring to Adolphus? It. It's just we reorient northern. It works. Yeah, come on. Look at all I've got. All I've look at my for you. shit. Look at all my shit. Look at my Vasa. Don't, Don't look, look at, the at Vasa. my shit. Never mind. Don't look at the Vasa. <laughs> Wallenstein's first move was basically to politely ask John George to evacuate Saxony, which he did. Of course, these electors ain't loyal. By May twenty fifth, sixteen thirty two, Wallenstein was back in command at Prague as Count Thurn, always uh, wandering around Thurn. there. Uh, who was in command of the Swedish regiment attached to the Saxons, reported back to Gustavus. Gustavus retreated north to Nuremberg, and Wallenstein marched west, meeting up with the elector Maximilian's Catholic army on the frontier of Bavaria and Bohemia. Wallenstein was able to trap Gustavus at Nuremberg, forcing the king's army to languish under harsh conditions. As much as 75% of his cavalry perished in the siege. Gustavus attempts to break out of the siege at the costly but indecisive Battle of Firth in early September, the Swedes finally broke out to the south, giving Wallenstein the opportunity to move north into Saxony, where he hoped to intimidate John George out of the conflict and lure Gustavus away from moving on to Vienna. The plan worked, and Gustavus raced after him. And on November 16th, the two great generals and their armies met outside Leipzig at the small town of Lutzen. Wallenstein arranged his 15,000-man army in the standard fashion, artillery in front, infantry in the middle, cavalry on either side, on the north side of the road from Lutzen to Leipzig, with the town of Lutzen to the imperial right, the Swedish left. He also crucially placed a line of musketeers in the ditch to the north of the road to cover any Swedish charge. Gustavus had the numerical advantage of 18,000 men, 
which he arranged in the Swedish fashion to the south of the road. Gustavus personally stood before his whole army to lead them in prayer in the morning, after the enemy had already begun firing. After trading artillery for several hours, the king led his right cavalry to charge the imperial left, and after heavy skirmishing in the front, was able to oust the musketeers from the ditch. On the other side, Wallenstein had had his army set fire to the town of Lutzen, and soon a heavy black smoke enveloped the battlefield. Wallenstein then ordered the Imperial Croatian cavalry to his, on his right to charge under the cover of smoke, crashing into the Swedish left. But the Swedes, commanded by Bernard Saxe-Weimar, held their position as murky, smoky chaos overtook the field. In this chaos, at some point, Pappenheim arrived and reinforced the Imperial left's cavalry, driving the Swedes back across the road they had won earlier. Pappenheim took a musket ball to the lung and would die choking on his own blood while lying in a coach on the way back to Leipzig, a blood-stained copy of Wallenstein's orders in his pocket. This is the orders that Wallenstein had given him uh, to get him to the battlefield. The enemy is marching in this direction. The Lord, leave everything standing and lying and make your way here with all men and cannons so that he can be here with us early tomorrow morning. I, however, remain wherein. And then he says, P.S. He, the enemy, is already at the pass where yesterday there was the bad road. And on the back of the envelope he wrote in Latin, Cito, Cito, Citissime, Cito. Quick, quick, very quick, quick. <laughs> and he did. He got there and then he took a bullet. And you, apparently you can still see that letter in Vienna? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, R.I.P. Pappenheim. Uh, you got to dispatch the, the goon before you get to the main guy. Exactly. Gustavus Adolphus, the king who believed... The ship that carries him cannot sink, rode into the smoke of the Swedish left flank and urged his men forward. But only his horse was seen riding out of the smoke cloud. Somewhere in the smoke, the king had been killed. As rumor without confirmation of the king's demise began to spread the field, Bernard Saxe-Weimar rallied the Swedish left and drove the imperial cavalry back into the flames of Lutzen. The Swedish right also rallied, retook the road, and drove Pappenheim's forces off the field. Wallenstein had lost command of the field and retreated at nightfall north to Halle in an embarrassing tactical defeat, but a shattering strategic victory. Gustavus Adolphus's body was eventually found, nude, under a pile of corpses in the ditch on the imperial side of the road. He had been stabbed, shot twice in the arm, once in the side, once in the back, and the killing shot in his right temple. The Swedish camp celebrated their victory in silence. It took some time for the news of the king's death to spread. In a letter written the day after the battle, Wallenstein could only vouch after reporting the death of Pappenheim that they say that the king is also dead. He took pains to uh, note as well that while he chose to retire from the field first, I have received from the enemy more than 30 standards and flags. He no more than five or <laughs> most six for me. Uh, but soon enough, the reality of Adolphus's death began to sink in. In less than three years, Gustavus had taken Sweden from the frozen periphery of Europe to the heart of continental power. A devastating series of battlefield victories and territorial conquest had seen Gustavus outgrow his alliance with France, gaining the potential ability to redraw the map of the Holy Roman Empire, taking its capital from Vienna to Stockholm. This obviously caused great anxiety in Paris, where Richelieu's policy of financial subsidy for the Swedes threatened to turn Gustavus into the effective head of a military and diplomatic alliance of Protestant nations that would be able to fatally check French ambitions for continental hegemony. The old iron law of unintended consequences. But fortunately for the cardinal, Gustavus died at Lutzen, and with him stopped the beating heart of the Swedish war machine. 
The throne passed to his eight-year-old daughter, Christina, and was held in regency by Chancellor Oxen Sterna, who took over command of the Swedish army. But nerdy little Axel is no Gustavus, and the Swedish military intervention immediately began to lose purpose and cohesion. To prop up the Protestant side, France would soon be forced to give up its pose of interested neutrality and formally enter the war. This post-Gustavus period is held in German memory as the darkest, most savage, and miserable years of the conflict. Now, this perception underestimates just how much darkness, savagery, and misery had been suffered and inflicted in the first part of the war, but it is undeniable that after more than a decade of ravening armies marching in every direction, the social and economic cohesion of the affected German lands was beginning to seriously fray. It's also true that with the grand designs of Ferdinand and the Swedes coming apart, the strategic logic of the war gave way to a policy of pure attrition, with the Spanish and Imperials competing with the Franco-Swedish alliance to keep their armies on their opponent's territory as long as possible, tearing through each other's agricultural surplus like locusts to make the enemy sue for peace to save their grain. Senior officers on both sides embraced the cynical spirit of the age and leveraged their command to extort lands and positions from the highest bidder while stripping the towns and villages they encountered of anything valuable. These are years that would be remembered for generations as a time of rape, torture, robbery, and murder of peasants by soldiers, as well as spasms of bloody vengeance visited by peasants upon soldiers, a time of plague outbreaks and witch hysteria, crop failures and starvation, all churned into being by the ceaseless trudge of armies across the ravaged center of Germany. The first three horsemen of the apocalypse were on their wild hunt. The people, hiding from cavalry patrols and freezing forests awaited the arrival of the fourth horseman the pale rider of death the only deliverance remaining to be sought and yet there was one man who still had the resources the authority the vision and the will to pursue a policy of total victory albrecht wallenstein was still in the field still commanded the most viable force in the empire if not the continent still with his eyes on the prize Gustavus Adolphus had said that no ship that carried him could sink, then foundered like the great Vasa. And now it was time for Count Wallenstein to build his own ship of destiny. on Earth is written by Matt Chrisman and Chris Wade. It's produced by me, Chris Wade, with editing from our co-producer, Nick Quaz. Show art and animation is from the great Ben Clarkson, and you can find a supplemental interactive atlas for the series by John White over at hellonearth.chapotraphouse.com. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds, with additional music by Alessandro Takeshi, The Great Varelli, John Ahrens, Tyrant King, Frederick Scarfoni, and Austin Riley. Join us next week as we finally go to hell.